0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. Introductory remarks were given by Jane McAdam, Scientia Professor of Law and Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Good morning, everybody. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you here to the Caldor Centre's third annual conference. I would like to acknowledge the Bedigal people of the Eora Nation on whose land we stand today and I would like to pay respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are here with us today. This year's conference theme is called From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile – The Role of Time in International Protection. The idea is to explore how concepts of urgency and delay, temporiness, And permanence, crisis and slow onset, and humanitarianism and development condition the ways in which we frame, understand, and respond to displacement, in particular when it comes to the design of law, policy, and institutions. It is now 65 years since the Refugee Convention was adopted. This year, there are 65 million displaced people in the world. The synchronicity of those figures would have caused grave concern to the the drafters of the Refugee Convention, particularly since they envisaged that instrument as something that would resolve the legal status of refugees displaced by the Second World War. We have all heard the accusations levelled at the Refugee Convention that it's passed, it's use by date. Critics of the convention tend to fall into two camps. On the one hand, those who see the convention as being too restrictive in its application, too outdated, and on the other hand, those who think that the convention alone is responsible for the displacement that we see around the world today. We're told that the refugee convention is too old to respond adequately to the displacement challenges of the 21st century whether that's because it's too restrictive in its reach or because it's too generous. We are told that the Convention is at once too narrow and too broad, simultaneously blocking yet facilitating access to protection. The fact is that without the Refugee Convention, the international protection regime would lose one of its key regulating components and would likely result in even more disorderly movement. As experience shows, Departures from the fundamental principles of international refugee protection have neither reduced nor stalled refugee movements, but have resulted in the ineffective mismanagement of large-scale influxes, the diversion of refugee movements, and the creation of tensions between states as burdens and costs are shifted from some onto others. And they are the words of Volker Turk, the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at UNHCR. The Refugee Convention was drafted at a time when Europe had seen some of the worst systemic human rights abuses imaginable. The Second World War had displaced over 50 million people in Europe, and 100 million within China. The number of refugees in Germany alone was at the number uh, was, was around 14 million. The 1951 Convention relating to the Status of Refugees, as its full name implies was an attempt to respond to existing displacement in Europe by providing a legal status, and thus some certainty, for the many thousands of refugees still displaced six years after the conflict. It was one of a number of fundamental human rights instruments negotiated at that time, including the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the Twin Human Rights Covenants, and the Genocide Convention at a time when the atrocities of the war still loomed large and the refrain, never again, was front of mind. Some of the convention's drafters had been refugees themselves, as was the UN's first High Commissioner for Refugees. They acutely understood the need for a legal instrument that that accorded a uniform legal status to refugees already displaced. The ideal of resettlement a mechanism that had been viewed both as a solution for Jewish refugees, as well as a more general population management tool in the face of resource scarcity, had proven impossible. And so the creation of a legal status that could be enjoyed within host states was seen as very important. Even though governments could have unilaterally created such a status in their domestic law, the creation of a formal agreement helped to ensure that the states signing the treaty offered similar levels of protection and thus helped to prevent further influences, uh, sorry, and thus helped to prevent further influences to those states that raised their standards. Accepting mutual obligations was key to international responsibility sharing. Although drafted in the 1950s, the refugee definition has proven to be capable of a dynamic interpretation. While the drafters never envisaged, for example, that gender-related persecution would be a ground for refugee status, the Convention has been able to adapt to incorporate that interpretation through the rules of treaty interpretation. It's allowed the Convention to adapt to evolving notions of human rights law. As the High Court of Australia has affirmed, the Refugee Convention's provisions must be understood in light of the Treaty's object and purpose, and not read purely literally or in a vacuum. This dynamic approach to protection through the progressive development of international law uses existing legal principles and standards within the scope of international law to secure the rights, the security and the welfare of refugees and to find durable solutions to their plight. Successive executive committee conclusions adopted by states through UNHCR have sought to clarify the content of the refugee convention as have guidelines and notes on international protection produced by UNHCR itself. Of course, the Refugee Convention scope is not unlimited. It has strictly defined exclusion clauses to prevent people who've committed very serious crimes from obtaining refugee status. Further, although the Convention is silent on the procedures required to recognise refugee status, it's quite obvious that having fair and effective procedures are a necessary component of protection to ensure that people entitled to it are accurately identified, and those who aren't are screened out. When refugee status determination procedures operate effectively and transparently, they're their own deterrent of misuse. This is because the decisions that have been made according to to transparent and effective practices are defensible, they can withstand public scrutiny and questioning. Whereas decisions that have been made, or that appear to have been made without proper regard to due process and impartiality, remain open to criticism. The principle of non-reformant is, of course, the cornerstone of the convention. Since 1951, it has developed outside the, the boundaries of the specific article of that treaty. So that human rights law now also prohibits return to very serious human rights violations principle of non-reformant is also recognized as a principle of customary international law that binds countries that aren't themselves signatory to the relevant treaties. So when returning to the criticisms that I outlined that are leveled at the refugee convention, we need to be very cautious about misdiagnosis and what Guy Goodwin-Gill has described as reaching for the treaty equivalent of euthanasia. Many of the convention's alleged deficiencies misplaced in my view. Those who call for the Convention's overhaul commonly misunderstand its historical origins and purpose. The Refugee Convention is in many respects a basic statement only of States protection obligations. It was in fact never intended as a comprehensive document. To quote another scholar, it didn't deal with and wasn't intended specifically to deal with large-scale movements, the question of asylum or admission, the details of international cooperation or the promotion of solutions other than those related to the status of the individual refugee. But if all of this is misunderstood, then it's easy to see why the Convention gets the blame. So what are some of the factors behind the messiness that we clearly are seeing in the world today? A key one is the lack of political will to tackle the challenges head on and to accept responsibilities, especially in view of the fact that what we have today is the largest number of displaced people since the Second World War, which arguably necessitates larger commitments. As the UN Secretary General said earlier this year, New lists of recommendations are not really necessary. Instead, mobilisation of the political will and resources to implement the decisions of the international community already taken in the General Assembly, the Security Council and other international fora are needed. Secondly, there's a failure to take the forecasting seriously and to plan. Syria didn't happen overnight. The writing was on the wall for a good five years, if only one cared to look. Refugees are not off on a world tour. Most prefer to stay as close to home as they can. But thirdly, there's the woeful lack of funding. The UN Syria appeal is its largest ever, but it remains terribly underfunded. Frontline states also need to be much better resourced to support and integrate refugees where possible. A quarter of Lebanon's population is now comprised of refugees and they need assistance to attend school, to work, to receive proper health care and to live a life of dignity. Such assistance should be pursued both as a humanitarian and a development strategy, not as a strategy of containment. Fourthly, as former Assistant High Commissioner for Protection, Erica Feller, said, there are many asylum systems which remain ineffective or unresponsive with some purposefully in decline, perhaps aimed at serving a deterrent function. Rather than using the Refugee Convention as a blueprint to guide positive action, some governments look for gray areas to confine and restrict their obligations as far as is arguably possible. This brings into question whether some governments are implementing their treaty obligations in good faith, which itself is an autonomous duty under international law. Fifthly, there has always been a responsibility deficit in the refugee protection regime. When the Refugee Convention was drafted back in the 50s, states actually rejected a proposal by the then UN Secretary-General to formally cooperate by agreeing to receive a certain number of refugees in their territory. And for this reason, the Convention doesn't settle the distribution of refugees. The irony of course is that displacement is a policy area that demands collaborative action and until we can move beyond reactive responses to deal more comprehensively with causes, we are destined to be locked into ever repeating cycles of displacement and therefore of displacement crisis. Events in Europe over the past two years have shown the precariousness of protection when governments fail to cooperate. So what is to be done? If we think of the Refugee Convention as our basic guiding framework, which sets out minimum standards and conditions within which states must operate, then how can we build upon that in good faith to ensure that refugees can access protection within our own country, within our region, and in the world? Senior UNHCR officials, Volker Turk and Madeleine Garlick, have argued that creating a more predictable response to large scale refugee flows would ideally be addressed through an additional protocol to the refugee convention in the longer term. But they recognize that at the moment, an incremental approach is much more realistic. Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill has suggested that current needs demand, and I quote, a new or very substantially revised statute for UNHCR and it's possible renaming as the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and Displaced Persons. He's also advocated for new funding arrangements, including the acquisition of funds for humanitarian assistance from the frozen assets of states responsible for displacement. He suggested we need to reconsider the idea of safe or neutral zones, the creation of truly regional responses to protection, such as a European Migration and Protection Agency in that part of the world, which which would be competent to implement and fulfil the EU's protection agenda. This September, the UN General Assembly's high level summit on refugees and migrants was not quite so ambitious in its aspirations, but nonetheless it was a historic gathering that resulted in the important New York declaration. As Elizabeth Ferris, who was closely engaged in the process, observed in her policy brief for the Caldor Center, which is available today. The declaration's reaffirmation of core principles of refugee protection was not a foregone conclusion, especially given the xenophobic climate in which the document was negotiated. At the New York Summit, states for the first time sought to create a systemic framework, sorry a systematic framework to coordinate responses to large influxes of refugees focusing on the roles and responsibilities of different actors and the needs of people in flight over time. They underlined the centrality of international cooperation to the refugee protection regime, and they recognized the burdens that large movements of refugees place on national resources, particularly for developing countries. States also agreed to begin a series of consultations over the next two years to result in the adoption of two new global compacts, one on refugees and one on migrants. The summit's outcome document, the New York Declaration, emphasizes the importance of international law as the guiding framework in finding long-term sustainable solutions. It commits states to protecting fully the human rights of refugees and migrants, irrespective of their status. It notes that all are rights holders. It addresses the importance of tackling the root causes of displacement through preventative diplomacy and the promotion of good governance. In the declaration, states reaffirm the Refugee Convention and its protocol as, and I quote, the foundation of the international refugee protection regime in conjunction with international human rights law and international humanitarian law. In particular, in the declaration, states reaffirm the right to seek asylum and the fundamental principle of non refoulement The declaration also calls for a multi-stakeholder approach to displacement that involves national and local authorities, international organisations, international financial institutions, civil society partners, the private sector, the media, and of course refugees themselves. The Declaration commits governments to ensuring that their refugee admission policies align with their obligations under international law and that they ease administrative barriers. The the comprehensive refugee response framework that's annexed to the Declaration provides a response blueprint in that it seeks to set out in detail the steps required by different actors at the outset of a large-scale influx. It draws on lessons and practices known to be effective although it's not particularly novel or original in its approach. Indeed, the declaration has been criticized by academics and certain civil society groups as lacking vision. However, those closely involved in the process have described it as nothing short of a miracle, given the xenophobic and anti-refugee rhetoric currently on display in many countries around the world. And I think it's important to recognize that states reaffirmation of their existing commitments under international law is significant, especially at a time when there's a palpable intransigence among states to respond in a truly coordinated and cooperative way. It's also important, given some politicians' suggestions that these rules don't matter. From a legal perspective, states' reiteration of the law in a formal declaration forms a vital part of establishing state practice and opinio juris. Still, When states flout their international legal obligations with disturbing regularity, restatements of the law can feel like little more than rhetorical flourish. It's also reassuring in the declaration to see governments indicating that they'll increase the number and range of alternative legal pathways for refugees to be admitted or resettled, thereby obviating the need for dangerous travel. Those mentioned in the declaration include Things like expanded humanitarian admission programs, temporary evacuation schemes, flexible arrangements for family reunification, private individual sponsorship, education pathways, including through apprenticeships or scholarships for students, and labor mobility schemes, including in partnership with the private sector. Increasing global resettlement numbers, creating alternative pathways to protection and abolishing carrier sanctions on airlines that transport people without visas would certainly result in a huge reduction of people undertaking unsafe journeys. Where appropriate protection might be granted to particular cohorts of refugees on a prima facie basis, given the objective country of origin conditions that they've fled. All these approaches would provide safe and secure outcomes for refugees, But in turn, they could also help to incubate a post-war economy by training and skilling up people who may one day return. There is ample documented evidence of the long-term economic and social contributions that refugees make, whether in developed or developing countries, including Australia. In Uganda, for instance, refugees have created jobs for locals through innovative businesses. The IMF has emphasised that refugee arrivals in Europe will be an important source of long-term benefit in the region, addressing gaps in skills, labour shortages, and of course, an ageing population. All this requires time to listen to people's concerns and to address them in an honest and responsible way. States have to acknowledge some of the short-term challenges while emphasising the long-term gains. Part of this, I think, is explaining why integration needs to be fostered as quickly as possible since idleness and isolation are far more likely to breed extremist views than a sense of community and belonging. Canada's experience with private sponsorship of refugees since 1978, for example, has helped the local community feel much more directly invested in assisting refugees and to be more welcoming towards them. This, in turn, can generate further political will to increase government-led resettlement. Any principled and sustainable response to displacement must be founded on certain basic premises. It must comply with the letter and the spirit of international law, both substantive obligations and the duty to implement treaty obligations in good faith. It should be grounded in a holistic 360 degree approach to addressing the root causes of displacement, development and humanitarian needs. It should incorporate effective practices from around the world, both past and present. It should emphasise protection over deterrence because people who need protection will seek it no matter how dangerous the journey might be. It should be founded on respect for human dignity and the premise that everyone has the right to a safe and dignified existence. Complexity in a policy area doesn't have to mean chaos. In fact, the more multifaceted and thorny a phenomenon is the greater need we have for a humble, level-headed and nuanced response. How we frame what the challenge is will influence the approaches we take to address it, and it will shape how we measure our success. Policy change doesn't necessarily signal weakness or indecision, but rather can demonstrate responsiveness to new information and greater understanding of the reasons for flight and the drivers for onward movement. The drafters of the Refugee Convention were well aware that refugee protection was not a way to short-circuit migration controls. On the contrary, refugee status determination demands the most stringent checks of all. But what the drafters recognised was that never again should the world bear witness to millions of people fleeing for safety and being turned away. International law on its own can't resolve the displacement we see today. But it does offer a principled, ordered framework for protection, which can serve both as the essential premise for international involvement, and as the measure for accountability for the assessment of particular actions or policies. The Refugee Convention remains the most comprehensive statement we have on the rights and obligations of refugees, supplemented by human rights law more generally. It doesn't provide a blank check. The needs of refugees and states are carefully balanced. Human rights law today bolsters and in some respects offers even more protection than the Refugee Convention does, such that renouncing the convention would not relieve governments of their key legal obligations. But if politicians, policymakers, and even academics don't appreciate the history of these protection principles and institutions, then flawed assumptions and approaches will inevitably result. This risks not only reinventing the wheel but misconceiving what the system itself was designed to do. This is no more apparent than in countries' disavowal of the Refugee Convention as a poor migration management tool when that was never its function. While the systems and structures for responding to refugee movements could certainly be improved, the Refugee Convention itself remains fit for the purpose for which it was created. But without political action to implement and enforce it, it can't do its job. Forced migration is an intractable global challenge, but unilateral actions will never address the needs. We need a system that's accountable, predictable, universal and solutions-oriented. And protection must be front and centre for everybody involved. Thank you very much.